In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. On January 31st, 1971, Navy Captain Dr. Edgar Mitchell, DSC, embarked on a journey into outer space that resulted in becoming the sixth man to walk on the moon. The Apollo 14 mission was NASA's third manned lunar landing. This historic journey ended safely nine days later, on February the 9th, 1971. It was an audacious time in the history of mankind. For Mitchell, however, the most extraordinary journey was yet to come. Scientist, test pilot, naval officer, astronaut, entrepreneur, author and lecturer, Dr. Mitchell's extraordinary career personifies humankind's eternal thrust to widen its horizons as well as its inner soul. His academic background includes a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Management from Carnegie Mellon University, a Bachelor of Science from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, and a Doctor of Science in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT. And in addition, he's received honorary doctorates in engineering from New Mexico State University, the University of Akron, Carnegie Mellon University, and an SCD from Emory-Riddle University. Dr. Mitchell has received many awards and honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the USN Distinguished Medal, and three NASA Group Achievement Awards. He was inducted to the Space Hall of Fame in 1979 and the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1998. He was also a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. As he hurtled earthward through the abyss between the two worlds, Mitchell became engulfed by a profound sensation, a sense of universal connectedness. He intuitively sensed that his presence, that of his fellow astronauts, and that of the planet in the window were all part of a deliberate, universal process, and that the glittering cosmos itself was in some way conscious. The experience was so overwhelming that Mitchell knew his life would never be the same. He's also the author of Psychic Exploration, 1974, The Way of the Explorer, later in 1996, as well as dozens of articles in both professional and popular periodicals. He has devoted the last 38 years to studying human consciousness and psychic and paranormal phenomena in the search for a common ground between science and spirit. Astronaut and Navy Captain Dr. Edgar Mitchell DSC. Forty seconds and counting. Alan Shepard reports that he's performing his final guidance alignment, the final uh, maneuver the astronauts perform before liftoff. Thirty seconds and counting. Stu Russo just said thanks. It's been a good count. Twenty-five seconds and counting. We are still go. Twenty seconds. Guidance alert. The guidance system now going internal. 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, ignition sequence start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, launch commit, liftoff, we have liftoff with Apollo 14, 3 minutes past the hour, the tower is clear, Houston is controlling, Welcome to In Discussion, and it is a great privilege today to be joined by astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell, welcome to you. Thank you very much, and pleasure to be with you. 
the Apollo missions, a very important historical event in our history. I, with my guests, always take them back to their childhood, draw a line in the sand, as it were, and then move forward. Could I start with your childhood and your memories of Hereford, Texas? Well, I don't have many memories of Hereford, Texas. We moved away from there very early in my life when I was still just an infant. When I was about three, my father was farming a, one of the family properties of a great aunt in Blackwell, Texas. And so happened that I was with him in the field one day when a barnstorming pilot ran out of gas and landed in our field. And my father helped him get started again and turn. I got a ride around the field in an airplane when I was barely four years old. That was a, a monumental event. How did your father influence you in any way in those early days? Clearly now we're beginning to paint the picture, as it were. That was obviously the catalyst to eventually lead you into the Navy and flying. Did your father have an interest in that? No, not really. My father was a man of nature. He knew his cattle. He knew his animals. He, he loved nature. And so I got that primarily from him and the joy of working with him, being with him in the field or in the forest or wherever we happened to be, because I traveled with him around the ranches and farms where we worked in the early days. So that was the first impressions, and he made a, a great impression on me at that point. Those were very different days, not only for American culture, but for the ways of life. How have you seen those change? What are the remarkable events that you have seen in the way that uh, rural culture society has changed in this country? Well, that, that's a very challenging question. Certainly, society, when I was growing up and when I was in my youth, society in eastern New Mexico, where we were at that point in time, we moved there. I started school at five and six in Roswell, New Mexico. And it was a small community, and there weren't that many hundreds of people or even thousands of people in the whole Pecos Valley where we had a ranch, two farms, and eventually two farm machinery dealerships in the 40s. So the life there was country. It was quiet. It was listening to the radio was a big event. I did have a very powerful experience in, in my youth when I was about five or six years old. So one of the neighbors was a ham radio operator. And he happened to be uh, in touch with, by radio, the explorers down in Antarctica. And I got to listen to, <laughs> listen to the exchange on uh, the ham radio, because I was called over. He was just a neighbor, and he invited me over to listen to this exchange when I was, I can't remember, it was, it, it, I was in elementary school at that point, somewhere around six or seven, something like that. And those were all very fond memories of my youth. Were you insulated in any way as a child? Did you have many friends that shared your joy and love of the country? Yes, I had a few. The friends that, particularly when we were living on one of our farms, there was always the farm life and the animals, and uh, got to go horseback riding with some of my friends because we had horses to help manage the cattle. And, of course, worked hard because I went to work uh, as a youth, plowing the fields, driving horses as, as a 9- and 10-year-old and 11-year-old and driving tractors. And I, I got in, introduced to that quite early in my life. And we had feedlots where we, uh, my grandfather traded registered uh, Herford bulls to uh, the ranchers and took in return their feeder stock, which we shipped off to market and due course. So being involved with all of that at a very young age, before I went off to school and college and when I was out of high school, was very impressive to me and gave me a very country background, as it were, a quiet background. This is something that children don't have now. I very seldom now do you see that, right? That's Even true. my childhood, uh, living in a cottage one mile from Stonehenge in Wiltshire in England, mm -hmm. uh, similar upbringing, spending the first 20 years of my life, being very close to the soil, very close to Mother Earth. This is something, is it not, that we could really do with for the kids to be able to take them to the, the natural rhythms of, of the soil and the earth. And I wonder how that, that can be accomplished, given that you are 
today seeing the mega cities and urban life and people resonating to the cities for work difficult evolution yes i agree just the sheer numbers and the cities of course are more concentrated with people and it's very difficult to imagine any children in large numbers although there's i know there are attempts at, to do it and there are programs to do that to introduce them back to nature at an early period but they don't get to really get to live in it in the way you and i are talking about here as for a goodly portion of their young life were you very visual in those days i can remember as a child being very visual loving the rolling wiltshire downs and loving the wonderful cumulus formations for so many years was that something that you resonated with and understood I believe so because, yes, I was visual, but I was also played musical instruments. My mother introduced me to music very early in my life, so I was playing the violin with a small group by the time I was six years old, uh, or learning to, and I learned, I, I became rather good for a youngster on the violin, and then I branched out into piano, and by high school I was playing several instruments. <laughs> my laughing comment here is I tried to find one I thought I could make a living at. Decided I was never good enough to make a living as a musician. But that was one of my er other early activities uh, growing up while still on the ranch and around the farm. My mother's contribution to that was music and art. Your parents' relationship, they were very strong. Is that something that resonated with you through life? Yes. They were very, well, they were only educated at the high school level because they reached adulthood in the Great Depression in the United States and there just wasn't money to go off to college. But they were very intelligent people, very well-read people, very strong-minded people, pioneer-type people in our West in those days. And so I, I was very fortunate. I had wonderful parents in that regard. So by this time, you're clearly very taken with music, visually stimulated very much by the environment that you yes, are living right, in. Right. Literature, are you becoming fond of literature in any way? Oh yes, <laughs> by the time I was in high school, I, some of my teachers took a great interest in me, particularly my science teacher in high school, and was very, very helpful to me. They paid a lot of attention and fed me uh, books to read, etc., so that I I did have a good grounding in the literature also. Was that science a traditional quantum science, or were you aware of the new scientific areas and the sciences that people like Tesla had been developing? No, I was not at that point. I would say we were still too backwards in our educational system in New Mexico, and uh, it was still too, uh, but I will use the word provincial at that point. Only after I went back to college in the East in Pittsburgh did I get introduced to more sophisticated sort of approaches to things. You became interested in the Boy Scouts of America. Was that influenced by your mother and father or other? Well, both. They had strong scout troops in Artesia, New Mexico. No, we were in a little town called Artesia near Roswell at this point. My father was also very involved in the Masonic Lodge, and so it was just a normal activity of the youth of our period. The scout movement was very progressive. Most of the boys were involved, and there was a female portion called the Eastern Star for the ladies, and well, that was for the Masonic area, but the Girl Scouts were also very active at that point. So that between the scouts and the Masonic orders, uh, were providing children's programs. I was very involved and very busy with those activities at, at that time. Now, in England, as a scout, I can remember it was God and Queen, courage, heroism. Were those the same principles that were resonating in the Boy Scouts of America? Yes, absolutely the same. New Mexico, of course, was very famous for the Trinity, nuclear testing. Do you have any recollections of that? Well, it so happened that the initial testing was at White Sands Proving Ground, which was just due west of the little town I was growing up in, Artesia, and the Walker Air Force Base, which was the first bomber squadron to carry the nuclear weapon, were just a few miles to the north of one of our farms and ranches. And so we did see and remarked upon 
some of the early lighting in the sky from weapons tests just across the mountain, a little over 100 miles away. The Trinity site is a very famous area. I think they open it up once a year, if my recollection served me correctly. Barbara Marks Hubbard, the futurist, always uh, draws a line in the sand at 1945 with the nuclear bomb as to how we arrived here today. But were you aware of anything consciously or subconsciously that that great light that you were seeing across the plains was something that was going to alter or change the state of our world? Yes, I think only a bit later in retrospect at the time that took place. I was only about 13 or 14 years old, but it became obvious because of the Walker Air Force Base, which was at Roswell and just up the road from where one of our ranch and farms was. And we had friends among the military people there. So we were exposed to that. I was exposed to that at a fairly tender age. And I heard my parents and the older people talking about the period as being very significant. And World War II, of course, was going on at that point in time. So there was some dis- political discussion and military discussion, but it, being a, just a child at point point and still just barely in high school during the war didn't make a lot of impression upon me. However, I did hear all the stories at that point. Were your parents in any way involved in debate over it, or was that outside of their area of interest? <clears throat> well, I won't say it was outside their area of interest. But we had the draft on at that point in World War II. But my father and his family and our family, all of the brothers and in the family, were concerned with food production, and the government considered that as vital as going to war. And so none of them were subjected to the draft to going to war, but more with production of food for the rest of the country as farmers and ranchers. And so we didn't get exposed too much to really politics, or I didn't get too much exposed to the politics of it at that point in time. I'm sure that that's something that you are grateful for. I can say I'm grateful for it. I do, in fact, have studied it in retrospect, and I'm fairly well up to speed on the military aspects and the political aspects of it. You went on through your childhood and into your teenage years. You were connected with the Demole International that you were made an honorary member of, I believe. The Demole Organization. It's my English, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a young men's aspect of masonry. Because my father was a mason and involved very much in the lodge, and he's recommended that to me, and I had a great deal of pleasure in working with the Demolay organization in those early years. Since I really was only involved in it during my youth in high school at that point, but very involved with it because of my father's Masonic background, but I was not closely associated with it over my adult life since I went into the military myself shortly after college and my Masonic and Demolay contacts simply. I just wasn't able to pursue them in those intervening years, later years. I do concentrate greatly on the decades after the war, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. What do you see as the main energies that came out of those decades? I look at the 50s as being the fear of the Cold War, expansion of industry and the consumerism, and the 60s as the great movements. How do you see that they evolved? I saw all of that also, but it had a little different context for me. Let me explain this to you. When I graduated from college in 1952 at Carnegie Tech, called then as Carnegie Mellon, now in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the draft for the Korean War was on. We were being drafted into the military. And I was already a pilot. I'd learned to fly when I was 13 due to this early interest that uh, we discussed briefly. And I already had my pilot's license. And I was about to be drafted into the Army right after I graduated from college, and I didn't want to do that. If I was going to serve my country in the military, I wanted to be a pilot. So instead of subjecting myself to the draft and going into the Army, I enlisted in the Navy and went to what we call boot camp in the Navy, beginning training for sailors. Then when I graduated from that, I went to officer school and got a commission as a naval officer. 
And then I applied for pilot school, be a Navy pilot. Then I went to Pensacola, Florida, went through the Navy flight school there. And now I was already, I got married at that point to my sweetheart in college. Our first child was born as I was finishing pilot school in Florida. And I went off then to Korea and with the Navy. And uh, long story short, I was coming back aboard an aircraft carrier in 1957 to shore duty and finishing up my obligated service to the military. But on October the 4th, 1957, is when Sputnik went up. And at that point in time, I realized a whole new period had just begun for humans, would shortly become a space-faring civilization, and humans would be right behind robot spacecraft. So that I realized I wanted to do that at that point. So the 50s that you were talking about after I graduated from college was spent in my time, was spent in the service with the Navy, flying airplanes and aboard carriers and aboard patrol planes in the Pacific until I got assigned to come back to test pilot duty in 1957 and 58. And from there, went on and got advanced education at MIT and, and was selected into the astronaut program in 1966. So that's kind of skipping over part of your time period, but I was very much tied up with the military and obligated service in the Navy during the 50s and getting educated, uh, increasing my education, getting a doctor's degree in the early 60s and then getting into the astronaut program later. I was very interested. I'm going to just go back to only one item because you've covered it so nicely. You attained a BSc in 1952 in industrial management. Industrial yeah. management, did that come out from your background or influence as being somebody who grew up on a farm in the rural area? No, the path was a little different than that. Uh, in high school, as I said, I had a teacher that was very, very helpful to me in science and technologies. And when I went off to school, I was planning on being an engineer. And I studied electrical engineering in my early years in college. But during the time I was there, after 1948, and it was between 48 and 52, the time I graduated, Carnegie Tech established a school of management. And I frankly did not want to go back and be a farmer or a rancher. I was interested in a more sophisticated lifestyle than that. And so when they started the School of Management, uh, I shifted out of my engineering interest and st started to become very interested in management of it. That was a course in management of, of organizations. So I got my first degree in industrial management from Carnegie Tech at that point. And I was pretty good, I guess, because they invited me to stay and get an additional degrees and become a member to consider becoming a member of the faculty. I didn't really want to do that, and of course the draft board intervened at that point, so my life took a different direction. Do you ever have memories of having to face Dad, inform him that you would not want to carry on in the traditions of farming? That was no problem whatsoever. My father and my parents were wanting me to do whatever was best for me, and we did have at that point yeah, the oil industry was very strong in eastern New Mexico, and we had many friends in the family who were petroleum engineers and geologists working in eastern New Mexico in that area. And they were very strong influence on me going east to get an education at Eastern College in a technical area. And so my parents were very encouraging of all of that. You gained, as you mentioned, a master's in aeronautical engineering, and then towards the science doctorate, astronautics. That choice point, could you explain that reason for going down that road? Well, at the beginning, at the beginning of the space age, President Eisenhower, our president at that point, took the government committee called the National Aeronautics Commission and changed it to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, and then when he did that, the new NASA, which was then became responsible for U.S. space activities, commissioned at the major leading schools, Princeton, Caltech, MIT, initially and then a number later on, uh, commissioned them to have graduate programs to help us learn about space because no one knew what space was all about. At that point, as I said, 
I had just come back to test pilot duty, and I was working at the Naval Air Station at Channel Lake, California, testing out some new techniques that we were using. And when I realized that astronauts were being selected, and I wanted to be a part of that, but I was a bit younger and had less flight time than some of the men that were early selectees in the astronaut program. And I realized that in order to compete, I was going to need something more. I was building my flight time as a test pilot as much as fast as I could. But I realized we didn't really know much about space and astronautics and what went on out there at all. So I applied to this program first at Naval School and went through and got a bachelor's in aeronautics. And from there applied to go to MIT to get a doctorate in this burgeoning new field of aeronautics and astronautics that Eisenhower had helped get started. And I was one of the early people to go through MIT to get a doctorate in this new field of aeronautics and astronautics. Now, by 1966, you were selected as an astronaut. Yes. How did that come about? Well, in the meantime, after I graduated, I was assigned to some duties with the military in space, in the new military space program. That really wasn't going anywhere, and so I applied to go to the Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base and was allowed to do that, and I performed both as an instructor and teaching certain courses there, but that allowed me to fly some of the more sophisticated exotic airplanes and most of the astronauts that were selected many of the astronauts that were selected were coming from Edwards I was there when I was selected in the astronaut program in 1966 Apollo 10 you were positioned as a backup lunar module pilot how did it come about that you were then finally selected for the Apollo 14 can you remember those days when those of us in my class there were 19 of us selected with me. We called ourselves the earliest astronaut for the original seven, Alan Shepard and that group. When we came along, there were 19 of us. There'd already been a couple of groups selected in between. We called ourselves the original 19. There were 19 of us. We were asked to select, ask for, or choose a technical specialty. And I chose to work on the lunar module and got assigned to go to Grumman Aircraft Factory in Long Island. And I'd commute up there as an astronaut and be associated with the development and testing of the first lunar modules uh, that had not been yet flown in space. But Fred Hayes and I, who were close friends at that point, were the two astronauts assigned to go to Grumman every week or whenever we needed to to uh, be the astronaut representatives at the building of the first lunar modules. And we did that in 67 and 68 and early 69. And then we came back and we finished that assignment. And our policy, the astronaut policy in those days, was that once you had done a technical assignment and familiarized yourself with what was expected of you there, then we got to be assigned to a backup crew in preparation for three flights later to be assigned to a prime crew. And so I got assigned to Apollo 10 as backup. Once we delivered the first lunar module to the Cape for flight testing, I went to Apollo 10. Now, the lunar first lunar module was going to be tested on Apollo 9, and it was Jim McDivitt, Rusty Swigert, and Don Isley. And uh, I went to work then as backup on Apollo 10, and Fred Hayes, who was with me at Grumman, went to, as backup on Apollo 11 which presumably meant that we would get to fly, uh, go to a prime crew three flights later, which was the policy at that point. That would have worked, but that meant I would have been on to fly on Apollo 13, and Fred would have flown on Apollo 14. But it so happened that on Apollo 10, uh, Gordon Cooper was command backup commander uh, with me, and I was lunar module pilot backup. And Gordon retired, wanted to retire after that assignment, and he did, and Alan Shepard, who had been grounded with Meniere syndrome, an inner ear problem, but had that fixed, uh, corrected medically, wanted to take his place and come on Apollo 13 as commander with me as with lunar module pilot. They approved that at Houston, but Washington disapproved it and said, Alan, you have been grounded with your medical problem. Perhaps best take a little more time for training. So they negotiated a switch with 
the Apollo 14 crew and our crew, then Apollo 13. We took Apollo 14, they took Apollo 13, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Ken Mattingly and that crew. They got a bad machine, we got the good machine. So it worked out very nicely for me and us. And furthermore, we were on the ground to, to help bring back Apollo 13 when it had its problem in space. How did you feel in the weeks leading up to January 31st, 1971? Did you have any expectations? Oh, yes. Just anxious to get on with it, to do the job. Uh, worked hard to make sure skill level was as high as it could possibly be. Worked closely with Shepard and Stuart Russo, our command module pilot, to make sure when we trained together as a team uh, in the command module that we did the best we could. In other words, we were test pilots, military officers, with a job to do, and we were determined to do it darn well. How did your wife feel in the weeks leading up to the launch? Well, I think most of the women had their trepidations. Being a wife to an astronaut at that point was not easy. And unfortunately, so the story goes, and as far as I know, the divorce rate among astronauts in those days suddenly exceeded that of medical doctors, which was the highest in the country at that point. So the ladies had a tough time of it, and it was not an easy life. Let's move on to January the 31st, 1971. I'd like to go through it stage by stage, if I may. Okay. You climb into that module. I'd like to know how you're feeling both consciously and unconsciously. Well, I can't tell you about the unconscious part because I wasn't that much into unconscious things <laughs> at that stage of my life. But again, here we were. We'd been training very, very hard. We knew the spacecraft like the back of our hands. We'd practiced and practiced all the maneuvers. And so here we were, veteran military officers and test pilots, just doing another job that demanded our total attention. We'd been adequately briefed by our predecessors. We had trained in the simulators over and over and over again. So uh, we uh, laughingly said after it was over with, well, that was a pretty good simulation, wasn't it? <laughs> because that is what we had trained to do. So it wasn't a matter of fantasizing. It was a matter of being pro-professionals doing our job. And yes, getting into space for the first time, looking out at the Earth as we climbed into beyond the atmosphere was an exciting thing, but then back to work, get your job done. You could not afford to let your mind wander more than just a few seconds. Okay, you could glance away, but you had to stay on top of it. What was the feeling like to see the Earth disappearing behind you, to see you shooting up it, through the, the atmosphere? That was a wonderful experience, and I have many photographs in my presentations of showing what the Earth looks like and looking at the thin atmosphere that covers the Earth that is our protector from the solar particles, the uh, vagaries of space and the vacuum of space. Pretty thin little skin that's, uh, of atmosphere that surrounds this Earth, and it's really an amazing thing to see the first time. But then we were very preoccupied with our job and doing what we had to do. How does the relationship change? You have three pilots three human beings shooting off into space for the first time. How does the communication, how do things change as you move into this special world? Well, you're a team, and you have your job to do. We were a very good team, as most of the crews were. They were all good teams, and they knew how to rely upon each other to do the job. You had to trust each other to do the job because your life was on the line with them. And we were each equally responsible for what we had to do to do our job correctly. So what you're seeing is a, a group of professionals. Now, people who are pilots who have been into war and World War II and others, they know this feeling too because it's professionalism. Your life's on the line. The life of your cohorts is on the line. The success of your mission is on the line. Uh, you're very much attuned to that. First sightings of the moon what are your recollections? Recollections? Well, the moon just kept getting bigger and bigger as the Earth kept getting smaller and smaller. As we 
took the three days to get there. And being able to look through the, our little telescope and see the moon approaching, reviewing our procedures, making sure we knew exactly what we were doing when we were supposed to do it, and fly, manage the spacecraft systems as we went out. That was what occupied us there for the three days going out. The landing is going to take place, therefore, on the 5th of February. Distinct memories about that. Obviously, now you are completely cohesive. You understand the systems as you have done throughout the flight. Are there any particular aspects then that you're considering as you prepare for the landing on the moon? We had problems with system failures going out. We had electrical systems start to uh, not perform as well as they should have. That had to be monitored. Then we had, when we got into the lunar module, Alan and I, we were preparing to go down to the surface. We had a system fail on us, a port light come on, that had to be disabled before we started down, else it would have returned us into orbit. It was an automatic abort system. And we decided what it was, but with Houston, we decided that it was probably a solder ball floating loose on a switch. So that created a problem for us that we had to solve and work around before we could go down. And it had to be done in the hour from the time we went out of sight of Houston until we came out on the other side and were ready to start down. So that was a very tense hour or so before we actually started down to the surface. When we came out on the other side of the moon and were ready to start down, we got it all solved. We had 10 minutes, we thought, to get it all solved and started on down. And it seemed to be working fine, but then we discovered that our landing radar uh, was not coming on like it was supposed to. And so we had to find a way to get that to come on because that would have been an automatic abort when we got down close to the moon. And we didn't, any of us want that. We're in the descent at this point. We are in the descent from 60 miles up right down to the surface of the moon. And that takes about 12 minutes or so. One of the most acute periods of any flight. Distinct memories of that stage as you get closer to the lunar surface? Well, the distinct memories were to get the radar functioning because our attitude, our position, and as a pilot you'll know what I mean by the attitude of the spacecraft, uh, we were coming down feet first. Our backs were to the surface. We were looking out, not down to the surface. And so we could not tell visually if our spacecraft, if we were on the proper trajectory and it's the right altitude. We had to rely upon instrumentation for that, just like an instrument approach for a pilot. It was only after we recycled the whole system down at about 20,000 feet and approaching our high key point, our cutoff point, the landing radar came on. Fortunately, it showed that we were right on track, right on altitude. And so uh, the thought of an abort was just not in our minds at all. We were in good shape. However, we were on manual control. We had lost our automatic abort system in this failure that had occurred earlier. And so had we had to abort, we would have done everything manually. And that would have been a problem. But it turns out we didn't have to confront that. You slowly take the last thousand feet, finally land. It is a smooth landing. What are you feeling prior to preparing to actually exit the module and take that first step? Coming in a state of high intense interest and tension, the computer actually did most of the flying to bring us down. It was a computer landing, but uh, Alan had his hands on the control and I was calling up signals to him and he was uh, touching it up and making sure we landed where we wanted to land and appropriately. <clears throat> but how did we feel about it? It was such a relief to be safely on the ground that the system worked for us and got us where we wanted to. We were at our designated landing site. And so there was a great relaxation and release of tension when we finally touched down and then had the time to start assessing our next step, getting ready to rest a little bit, get some food, and then go off and take our first steps out into the lunar surface. Okay. Down. 50 feet. We're in good shape, too. Three feet per second. 
40 feet, 3 feet per second, 30, 3 feet per second, looking great, 20 feet, 10, 3 feet per second, contact down, new stop, Great. Oh, auto, auto, we're on the surface, okay, we made a good landing, roger, enters, 413 plus 10,000, that was a beautiful one, yeah, we're slightly off, the first person to exit the module. Do you remember the period when you first opened that oh, door? Of course. And the, of course the cabin was so small that then we had to open the door, the hatch in the front, and it opened up toward my side of the cockpit. So the commander, Alan Shepard, on the other side, uh, he had to get out first from the positions we were in. And that was the way we planned it. That's the way we uh, uh, did it. And it all worked well. It was all wonderfully. But uh, you must remember here, we were going by the checklist and uh, doing exactly the way we had practiced it. And uh, fortunately, it went smoothly just the way we had practiced it. Okay, Ed, uh, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Okay, Ed, uh, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Very great to be coming down. Roger, bottom step. As we move towards the end of this first of our two programs, talk about those steps that you took down that ladder. Feelings? Well, what in particular? Getting out of the spacecraft after Alan had been out, and we did had certain procedures we wanted to do. I followed him out immediately thereafter. He set up the, the camera so that the world could see what we were doing. And then we had to back out of the spacecraft to go down the ladder on the, on the front leg of the uh, landing gear of the uh, spacecraft. There were steps there to the ladder. And unfortunately, unfortunately, as the case may be, we had not compressed the strut. Uh, it was about a three-foot drop from the last step on the ladder down to the landing gear pad. So it pushed off and jumped down to that and then practice to make sure you could jump back up and get back up later on. Uh, practice, get back into the spacecraft step, jump up there. And then started doing the things on our checklist. Every, every instant, every minute, every second actually was programmed. And we had it on a cuff checklist for ourselves, a watch on one hand, a checklist on the other. And Houston whispering in our ear, uh, quite often you're one minute behind, now you're two minutes behind, and so on and so forth. But we were following our checklist precisely, right like we practiced doing it, and it was high exhilaration to be on the ground, uh, on the surface. But uh, we had work to do, and just like flying out there, we focused on our job at hand. Are there any immediate recollections? Clearly you're very structured in your mind. Are there any recollections of for brief periods looking around you at oh, that yes. landscape? Oh, yes. Wonderful looking to landscape. Barren, like sand dunes. For those who have been in the desert area, one sand dune looks about like the other. Oh, boy, in this course, they weren't dunes, they were craters. Craters pockmarking the whole surface everywhere. And, of course, judging distance is deceiving because the horizon on the moon is much closer. Curvature of the moon makes the horizon very close. And so you have quite a difficulty judging distance. And that was one of our biggest handicaps and drawbacks. It's like people who go in to the desert for the first time and there's a mountain range off many miles away. You just misjudge your distance completely, how far away it is. And that was our problem on the moon. All of us, all the crews had the same problem that configuration of the moon itself, the smaller size, the cratering craters and pockmarks were very um, very confusing. You find hard to accommodate and get, get a good picture of it. You had to work on it and be on the ground, on the surface there for a while before it started to settle down and you could, could make good judgments. Thoughts on wife and family and home, childhood at that stage, or was there just not there, the time? that was not in the books at that point maybe when we got back in and had time to rest a little bit to have some food have a little private time and try to sleep okay then you could think about family and all of that 
but when you were on the surface and doing your job, uh, everything was pressing on you so hard. We were invariably behind time because every piece of equipment that we had up there was new. It had not flown before. And we expected some equipment to fail, you know. Uh, if you test aircraft on Earth, you get to test them and test them, and, and the weak points become pretty obvious. And new equipment, seldom that you take new equipment and take it to the moon like we did. And so we expected there to be failures of equipment. Well, there wasn't. So in expecting that, we planned ourselves a timeline that was about 120% of human capacity. But if something didn't break, that meant we had to work very, very hard to try to stay up. And that was exactly what happened. We didn't, nothing broke for us. I mean, equipment didn't break or come apart. It all worked perfectly. And so we just had to keep at it minute by minute by minute, stretching ourselves to uh, get the job done. Were you in any way becoming aware at that stage, and possibly it was not until you were returning back to Earth, seeing the universe in a different way at this stage now that you're on the moon? Well, a little bit. By, of course, we wanted to look up and see Earth, which was directly overhead. And looking at Earth as just a little orange-sized basketball, rather, golf ball-sized or tennis ball size up in the sky above you. That's kind of an awesome feeling. But you, we just didn't have time to dwell on that. We'd look up and say, oh my gosh, look at that. And isn't that wonderful? And then back to work. And the famous golf shot that Commander Shepard made. Well, that didn't happen until after we had finished our second EVA 34 hours later. Uh, we had just a few, well, maybe a minute or a minute and a half to pull that one off. And he hit his golf shop, and I threw my javelin. That was on television for the world to see, and then we had to get on with our business of getting back into the spacecraft. But we were right up against the timeline, very tight, when at the end of the mission and had to get right back into the spacecraft, get it loaded up and get out of there. How did you feel for the last time, knowing possibly that you wouldn't be returning to the moon? Yeah, that was realizing the likelihood we would not be that way again. And so we were taking a good look at the site and uh, it's soaking it in and thinking about it and just remembering all of that, trying to take it all in. And so it would be deep in our memory, realizing we probably would not be able to come back. It must be amazing memories. Yes, absolutely. How did it, in retrospect, affect your life going forward? Had you not achieved this that's a hard question to ask what it would have been like without that. The fact is it did. And, of course, my life has been quite different after that, being one of the few people, 12 people to have been on the moon, being sought after to talk about it, speak about it for all these. And then 40 years later, we're still doing that. And that's, uh, quite, that's quite interesting. Talking through the takeoff yeah. from the moon, memories of that? Well... The memories of it proceeded just exactly like we hoped it would. We'd practiced the rendezvous with the command module overhead. There wasn't anything that was a real surprise except for the fact of just doing it for the first time and watching the engine ignite and the flag start to whip in the, in the breeze and the dust come boiling out. But then all of a sudden here we were, 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet, going up in a rocket again. And uh, with Stuart going overhead, and, and then we were had to focus on, okay, we have to execute the rendezvous maneuver so that we can join up with the command module. And we were the first spacecraft, we were the first crew to do a, what's called a direct rendezvous on the first orbit, the first, uh, as soon as we took off, we were headed right for the command module. And we uh, connected with him on the first first lap around the moon. Memories of that uh, meeting with Stuart oh, yes. Ruzza? Oh, oh, yes, it was wonderful. It was, again, tedious detail, following following the plan precisely. And But one of the humorous things as we approached our procedure was he was to do a pitch maneuver so we could kind of inspect his spacecraft from our point of view and make sure everything was okay. He did that, and then we closed in and docked with him. And the procedure was uh, we docked with him and hooked up, and then Alan went up, tapped on the shield between the two, the way to get in. 
he tapped on it and Sue in a very humorous way said oh and Adam tapped on it and said knock knock and Stuart on the other side said who's there which is the old, <laughs> old joke knock knock who's there and that was a bit of humor that uh, was thrown in there at the last minute Clearly you were very pleased to see each other at that time. Everything, uh, that is right, everything had gone so smoothly, except for the fact we had these failures coming up that we had to work around, and the failure going down that we had to work around. But with the excellent help of the people on the ground and our own command of the spacecraft, because we knew the systems, I knew the systems in particular very, very well, we were able to work around it and get it all done with hardly a hitch. In the years afterwards talking to children talking to people talking to adults it must have been an amazing inspiring time to know that you had achieved this and that you could talk to them express to them those feelings that you had then and the feelings that you had finally returning back to earth it must have been an amazing journey to take yes the main thing was the fact that we were suddenly a space-faring civilization. And since I had studied enough astronomy and cosmology and star systems in my PhD work at both MIT and Harvard, that I realized that this old universe that we're in is uh, much more complex, much more vast, much there's much more to learn. And I say in my lectures, have all the time speaking to children particularly, that we're just barely out of the trees. We think we're a pretty smart civilization, and we are, we've accomplished a lot, but we're just barely out of the trees when it comes to knowing how this universe is put together. We don't know very much at all. And that was what came home to me very strongly, looking at the heavens from outside the Earth's atmosphere. Edgar Mitchell, it has been a great privilege talking to you today in the first of our two programs. I do thank you. Thank you, and we'll talk soon. And to our listeners, I do hope that you enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. This is the ignition. What a liftoff. And liftoff. Roger, ignition. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.